Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today, I finally get to have on the podcast uh, Mr. Ian White. Uh, Ian is a Welsh actor and stuntman, a former professional basketball player, and he's been involved in some of the biggest IPs in all of film and television from Game of Thrones, Alien vs. Predator, Prometheus, Harry Potter, Clash of the Titans. Uh, Ian, is amazing to have you on here today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. Great pleasure for me as well. It's uh, before we kind of get into like your life and career. I know I've had a couple of actors on recently, um, going with the SAG strike and like the strikes going on, the unions and people fighting and stuff like that, trying to figure out what's fair. What are your kind of thoughts on that? Without kind of getting too deep into it, I mean, obviously you're affected by this, correct? Yes. Um, over here in the UK, we are kind of on strike by default at the moment. We are prevented uh, by strict labour laws uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, for coming out uh, in solidarity, coming out on strike in solidarity with SAG. But obviously, we all stand together with our brothers and sisters in the Screen Actors Guild. The main argument, as I see it, the main issue, as I see it, is you know the synthesization of the human experience. If it's written, it should be written by a human. Yeah. If it's performed, it should be performed by a human. If it's spoken, it should be spoken by a human. And, and I don't think I can simplify it any more than that. You know, it's our world. It's not a computer's world. You know, we are the we are the driving force. It's you know, uh, if you say to if you say to me, oh, I'm just falling in love with my beautiful woman. I understand that, but a computer doesn't. Computer is just typing out the words. It's it, you bring up a great point because the AI, especially coming out of the pandemic and through the pandemic, I was just like with TikTok and all this stuff coming out, and all of a sudden these deep fakes and all these videos. And I get, I mean, it's just, for me, it's just so confusing. It's why not have the human experience attached to it? Because how hard would it be if they were to redo Game of Thrones now and they're like, you know what, I we don't need Ian or these guys that play White Walkers. It's gonna be all CGI. It'll be all AI. He's already done the motion capture. Let's just use him. He does not. He's not going to know. The viewer's not going to know. And it's like it takes away from the what I love about the arts. It's like the 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 blood, sweat, and tears involved in putting something together for the benefit of other people to enjoy. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, to go back to uh, what you just said, um, I will know because <laughs> I'll know that I haven't done it. <laughs> Yet I'm watching myself on the screen. <laughs> you know, um, I think you know it's a it's a useful toolbox. I was having this conversation with a colleague uh, over the weekend. You know, I was saying, listen, you know, if you get a builder into your house to do some work into your house, it brings a toolbox with him. It doesn't put the toolbox on the floor and say, okay, toolbox, build a new kitchen. I'm going to have a cup of coffee. No, the builder is the craftsman. He knows how to use the tools. And I've heard, you know, Robert Writers um, extolling the virtues of things like chat, GBT, et cetera, et cetera, saying, okay, you know, these, these, these are tools that we can use. Okay, fair enough. But if you know 
how to use the tools, that's fine. But if you're saying to ChatGPT, okay, go write me a script, I'm going to have a cup of coffee, then it's give it's not it's not utilizing the tool. It's it's making it a um, uh, an alternative, an alternative that doesn't work in the human experience in the human realm. It's for me like the whole chat GBT. If I'm a producer or a screenwriter or somebody who's writing actively creating content, if I use chat GBT and put it out there and then build a script based on that, who gets the credit? The person that typed it into the chat GBT, like wh where do you draw the line for this now? Well, I'm no, I'm no expert as you can probably tell, but uh, uh, there was an article in the news uh, about a week or so ago where a lot of very high profile writers are. Have launched a, um, a significant lawsuit against um, these AI yeah. uh, companies because they haven't they haven't credited anybody. <laughs> so before as we get th before you jump into like the entertainment industry with your basketball career and obviously your height led to that. Were you always someone who's into the sports and athletics? Was this something you're like where were when you were in grade school and stuff? Like, how did you get into basketball and sports and all that? Um, I got into basketball uh, quite by chance. Um, one of my sports teachers was a basketball player himself. He was he was six foot four, and he played basketball and he played rugby. So if you were if you were tall, then you were um, invited to uh, play rugby and basketball for the school. And uh, one of his friends was uh, the coach of uh, a local club team. And uh, I went along to, uh, to practice uh, with uh, this local club team. And it, it grew from there. I remember uh, the, my first day in practice, I got elbowed in the face, blood streaming out my nose. But um, I wasn't deterred. And I kept on going. Awesome. It's uh, I've always this, this will correlate back to like well, your career and stuff, but I've always resonated with like the big, tall players in sports, like the Dikembe Mutombo's, the Shaquille O'Neal's, uh, Madhu Bull, all these crazy tall people, athletic people. I'm always just blown away by how hard it is to be that athletic at that size and be good at what you do, especially when it comes to sports, because it's I don't know, like it's just when you're training at that height, like at what point were you just kind of like, oh my God, the sky could be the limit. If I'm going to be over seven feet tall, I can make a career out of basketball. Yeah, I, I think I was about 17 years old and I was already seven feet tall then. And it was the, the first, you know, it's a difficult childhood, I'll, I'll admit. <laughs> um, I think that was the first realization that I had that, uh, you know, this could actually be something because, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't even know what basketball was until I was 13 years old. Uh, I have a young son, uh, and he is a terrific sportsman. You know, he plays rugby, he plays basketball, he plays cricket, he plays football. You know, children have so many opportunities uh, these days, and they see their sporting idols on, on television all the time. We watch NBA basketball all the time. And, uh, you know, because we have, we have it available. But back then, right. it wasn't available. So you had to go out and find it. And to even consider it as a career, you know, beyond anything, to consider it beyond anything just as a fun opportunity was, well, it was to my parents, complete madness. 
my mum and dad said, go and work in a bank. I said, no, I want to be a basketball player. <laughs> yeah. But to travel the world and do that, and I mean, it's it's surreal. We think of how many people don't become professional. They go to college and don't get drafted and all this stuff. And to be at that level, I mean, it, it is kind of surreal. It's it's a, what a unique, especially from a Welsh background. And even your, you'll see a lot of tall people from your part of the world either that can play at that such a high level. It's pretty surreal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once you start playing basketball, you start to meet a lot of taller people. Yeah. <laughs> and in my experience, there is always somebody bigger. Right. I I, tra I trained with Shaq, Shaq many years ago. Uh, it was 1994. He'd come over to London for uh, a week to promote his record, his first yeah. record. And uh, he brought he brought some of his uh, squad with him. And uh, he was just looking for players to uh, to practice with against Rowe. And um, so uh, me and a few other friends uh, traded with him for one or two days. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. It was unbelievable. I mean, he is he was an incredible player. He really was. He was not only was he big and and powerful, he was fast. I mean, he was a, he would be around you in one step, and you wouldn't even know about it. Right. Incredible. Yeah. It's so when you were doing this, the the basketball part, were you studying anything in school? Like, what were your plans, or what would your parents envision you doing as for academics or for a career? Well, I pretty much left home and went to uh, Iona College for in two York. years. In New York, York, right? And, yeah, um, yeah. And the guy who recruited me is a guy called Gary Brokaw, and he had NBA credentials, played in the NBA for a number of years, and uh, he had an assistant coach called Jim Brostick. Was also uh, an ex NBA player, and they were just so inspiring and so inspirational. They had a fantastic rapport with the players, and you know, not only did they understand you know the game inside and out, understand the responsibility of you know professional conduct and you know the the value of hard work, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but they understand the fun element of it as well, and. And they were always dressed immaculately. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, really cool. They were always shoot, uh, suit, tie, sport coat, trousers, whatever. You know, always looked a million dollars, always looked the part uh, as well. I remember walking into the um, uh, office one day and, uh, we, you know, every now and again in the, uh, in the preseason, we used to have NBA players come in uh, to the gym and just, and just work out with us. I remember one day uh, I walked into the office and uh, Jim Bostic was uh, in his office. I could hear him talking in a very distinctive, uh, deep, uh, basso profundo type of voice. Yeah. But I couldn't see him because there was a giant wall in the way. And all of a sudden his head poked out from the side. He said, hey, Ian, come over here. Come and say hi to my friend. And his friend was Ed Pinkney from the Boston Celtics. Oh, yeah. And Jim was about six foot nine and you know, about 270 pounds. And he was completely obliterated by this 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 huge NBA star. Awesome. It's uh so when when you how does the transition happen from the end ending your professional playing career into stunt work, acting, and stuff like that? Because it's like I've always thought when someone that happens it's always like happenstance unless you're actively searching for it like was there a call or someone that found you or was like hey ian uh, you should probably think about doing this because we need someone who's seven feet tall and is athletic and can actually pull this off 
Yeah, at the time I was uh, still playing basketball, although I was coming to the end of my career. I had given myself another year and quite by chance the phone rang and uh, it was uh, the secretary of the, um, the club I was playing for at the time. And she said, listen, we've just had this casting director on the phone and they're looking for somebody like you. Uh, would you like to talk to her? Can I give uh, her, your phone number to her? And my first reaction was, come on, nobody wants to put me in a movie. Uh, so I said, yeah, of course. Uh, so five minutes later, the phone rang and it was uh, Suzanne Smith, the uh, casting director of Alien versus Predator. And they were going into production very, very quickly. And would I please come down and audition for the part? And it was probably the hottest day of the year uh, uh, that summer, about 35 degrees, a small audition studio in London. And they gave me a wetsuit and a balaclava helmet, wooden balaclava helmet, and the mock-up of the Predator head and said, start running. And about 30, 40 minutes later, she said, okay, you can stop now. And uh, she said, how was that? I said, well, I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy. It wasn't easy. She said, but I can do it. And she said, okay, thank you very much. And the next day I met the director uh, very, very briefly. And about two weeks after that, I was invited to Prague, where the film was eventually going to be shot, to meet the uh, the um, uh, award-winning uh, creature effects designers. And it was about two weeks after that where I got the phone call from the producer offering me the part. It's such a... And I, the first Predator movie, I watch that movie every month. Uh, probably during the pandemic, I probably watch it three times a month. And... The reason why I love it, outside the Arnold and Jesse Ventura and all that stuff, the the Predator, the portrayal of by Michael Peter the Peter Hall, um, who played Harry the Hendersons, I've always loved his story. I know it's the tragedy surrounding his death, um, but to kind of fill into someone like that that person's shoes to be playing this new version of this certain this Predator, big athletic guy, was there any type of like, like how do you you jump into this rehearsal, you do it. Do you ever go back and watch those old movie, the old original movie, and see his movements and how you could make it a little bit different or similar? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's that was the first thing I did. You know, that was for a while the only frame of reference I had. I, okay. I went through the movie, the original movies, frame by frame, trying to extrapolate little nuances of performance, trying to figure out how, you know, how this character acts and behaves. And, uh, yeah, he was, obviously, if he had been around, I would have, um, I would have bombarded him with, uh, with questions as to <laughs> yeah. what do I do? <laughs> it's Luckily, a... I very good mentors. Tom Woodruff and, and oh. Alan Gillis were obviously worked on uh, uh, Predator with, um, uh, with Kevin Peter Hall. So um, they, uh, they were very good mentors for me to have. It's... Uh... So when you, I think the reason why I resonate with characters, the especially the ones you play, is I, I mean I don't don't take this the wrong way, but I, I guess if you're eight feet tall or whatever, it's easy to play a big character like that. But the way you play the Predator or uh, the Giants in Game of Thrones or Suleiman in Clash of Titans, there's this sort of empathetic approach to these characters where you're not just a seven foot tall creature or thing. 
there's some sort of empathy behind you and we're like this it, you make them believable in a sense like that scene in aliens of predator where you pick up lance hendrickson and you notice he's die of cancer or whatever and, like there's some sort of like just the way your eyes or like how you move and how you hold it's just there's much more to what you do to your characters than just being a big hulking menace and like i don't know if you can kind of talk about that because i find it super unique how you're able to pull off these characters that on paper they're intimidating but there's they're they're very human too like they're they're very empathetic they they're caring and they show some sort of like emotion uh yes i mean you've gone straight to the heart of of uh, what it is you know to bring these characters to life um my whole process is about humanizing it and by humanizing it, i don't mean make it cute and cuddly i i mean anchor it in a human experience in a human frame of reference so for example with with the predator um i'd go mad trying to figure out how an alien behaves acts talks thinks but he is a warrior he's recognizable as a warrior okay so there's my first frame of reference ding now i go from there now i go back what does a warrior do to get to that point okay in the story it's like a it's like a rite of passage so how does a warrior live his life up until that point the training the pain the dedication the uh the isolation perhaps being perhaps being taken away from his family is it like a um a warrior caste that he uh, is forced to join or, or is he does, is he a volunteer is he given to you know the teachers to uh, to be taught this you know, way of the warrior so to speak you know all these questions and the more questions you ask the more answers you get yeah it's such a when i had uh James Jude Courtney on the show, good friend, stuntman, actor. He played Michael Myers in the last few Halloween movies. And he had the reference like you did with Peter Hall. Uh, the Nick Castle played the original Michael Myers. It's so based on movements. But in talking with trying to make it his own character, he studied his own cat to mimic the motions of Michael Myers sleeking in the dark and kind of doing his thing. When it comes to original character, like the character in Clash of Titans or a giant in Game of Thrones, what are your reference points in making these movements and these characters do what you do and how to make that put them out there like that? Because it's yes, you had the the Predator reference, uh, but the characters you play originally, like the last engineer Prometheus, like no one knew what this character was or how he moved. Like, what are your reference points in creating these movements? Uh, Sheikh Suleiman in, in Titans, um, he was, I, I saw him as kind of a wizard. So I was thinking in terms of, um, uh, Christopher Lee in, um, in, uh, Lord of the Rings. And, um, I forget the name of the actor, uh, the guy who played Merlin in, um, in Excalibur. And in fact, I used, I used the, um, uh, the magic, the magic spell speak in some in some form from from Excalibur just to uh the director wanted something off the cuff uh on set to use as a as a as a sound reference and um for some reason I could remember the uh the spells from from the film Excalibur it's like um something like that 
So I just started doing that. And then I started going into other kind of stuff and just making it up as I was going along. <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah, that was, a, he was a really fun character. I really enjoyed him. That was a great fun movie to be part of. And again, another one of those characters that has a, you, you first meet that character as a menace and you're like, who is, this is a big villain. And then you realize, again, empathetic, emotion, uh, sacrificial, like sacrifice himself for others. It's, it's got to be. Is it tough for you to portray that through a, all this prosthetics and makeup and costumes? Because it's like a lot of characters you play, very rarely can you see your face through, unless it's like a the plague the mountain in season two of Game of Thrones or something like that, where it's like, it, is it even more difficult, more dependent on your motions and the physical aspect of these characters since you are hiding behind a lot of prosthetics and makeup? Uh, yeah, in in terms of hiding, you know, the, the mask I've always found is um, is is a fantastic um, thing to have because you can just let go completely with a mask on. You can absolutely become the character. And if we're talking about the giants from uh, from Game of Thrones, um, yeah, initially I just played them very aloof. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be around anybody. He just wanted everyone else to go away and leave him alone. He just wanted to be left alone. Leave me alone. What are you staring at? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's what made your portrayal of the mountain, I think season two, where it's such a vile character, a sadist, killer, rapist, murderer. Is it tough to play a character like that if it's goes? It's be that's obviously you're nowhere that person, but to play a villainy like a, a crazy, crazy, sadistic person like that, like again, how do you dig deep to make that person that hated and that like? Because it's like, do you separate yourself when you work with the cast or crew of something a show that massive? If I'm a vile character, am I wrong to think that you are definitely not hanging out with these people? You want them to actually hate you to make this character's portrayal seem that much more uh like like just really stand out with playing villains the first thing you have to remember is villains don't want to be villainous oh gotcha the yeah. villainy comes from a deeper uh psychological complex yes the mountain was a psychopath yes he was a child murderer yes he was a rapist he was a vile disgusting human being you can't judge him for that it's there's a reason behind it somewhere right you may have to dig very deep to find it but eventually you'll find it and um yeah i had i had a cut i went to an audition uh, about a year ago and the project never got off the ground it was it was a low budget thing but somehow i'd got hold of this script and i really wanted to play this character he was a villainous character and i went to the audition and uh it went fine and the director gave me a note. He said, can you be more villainous? And I thought for a second, and you know, I just think very quickly, think, well, do I actually, am I gonna be the one to tell him that, you know, that villains don't wanna be villainous, that comes from a deeper psychological complex, or understand that I wanna play this part and just say, oh yes, how villainous do you want to be? Right. <laughs> So I did it again, a bit more sort of sort of theatrical villainy, and it never got off the ground anyway. But yeah, if you're playing villains, you have to you have to understand them. You have to understand where that villainy comes from. When 
when it comes to playing numerous characters on a show like Game of Thrones, did you was it tough to separate each character individually, or was there ever as you got towards season seven, eight, playing the giants and stuff? With was there part of the mountain or uh, a a a walker, a character that you carried over where you're kind of like, is it tough to like disenfranchise your mind from being a certain character one season and next season coming back and play a different character? Like, do you ever carry over anything over, or is it just a quick rehash and a quick like just restart? Oh, you now you're playing someone different. It's easy to shake those type of movements or like characterizations out of your head. Yeah, it's a, enough time elapsed between uh, the shooting of the seasons to gotcha. give me a chance to just let go and wipe the slate clean. Yeah, no, there was none of the mountain in in the Giants at it, all. And uh, when you played, I think the giant Wood Wood, uh, the one that gets with all the arrows. Um, yes. And I, the, the, every time I saw that character that season, I think it was season five, uh, you, I would always be like, again, I'm a, it's neighbored by the, this giant. Like, I just love this, all this mythical, crazy stuff. I see this giant and I'm like, there's so much more to this character that as they kind of tease this character, having this very empathetic approach to very understanding. He's not an idiot. He's not, yes, he's strong, but there's more to him. And I, in that final battle where he knocks through the door and gets all his arrows, I, I can't think of the movie, but it's this Japanese samurai movie where like the, all these arrows hit this one character and he just basically dies. But it was so, so tragic. And it was like the first time in that show where a character that I felt didn't deserve to die gets killed. And I felt very emotionally attached to him. And so for filming a scene like that, do you go in knowing this character is going to die in the season or they kind of tell you as they feel me along because they know the impact is going to be so great as, as the audience starts to realize, well, this character, people resonate with him. Yeah. I didn't realize how much people resonated with him. Um, it's throne of blood, by the way, that movie. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. I know. I didn't realize how uh, much people did res you know, resonate with him until I was watching that particular episode and uh, my wife nudged me and she said have you uh seen your twitter page and i said no i don't what do i what do i need to look at my twitter page <laughs> and i picked up like three thousand followers in the space of about five minutes and people were sending me messages saying oh my god i can't believe you're dead so yeah i you know you don't play a character you know assuming that it resonates well with the, you know, with the audience, um, you, you know, as long as you're doing it, as long as you're happy with the way you're doing it, right? I think I didn't know his death. His death didn't um, didn't really affect me at the because when you're shooting it, you know, yeah. When, when you die, it doesn't really affect you beyond okay, that's the end of that. I'm now dead. <laughs> right. It's such a. Yeah, I remember watching that with my cousins being like, oh my God, like not only good, like like how do you kill a giant, right? And so but then you as it happens, you're like in real time, and you're just like, what a unique homage to that character's and the person portraying him. Because it's like it was such a heroic death. And when you first meet this character, you oh, he's just a lumbering giant who can punch people with his fist and put posts to the ground and build walls and whatever, but by the time that episode hit, you're like, oh my God, like again, 
an attribute towards you and people like you that are able to portray these characters in such a way that they're they're more than what you perceive them as. Yeah, well, I'm I'm drawn to their uniqueness. You know, everyone remembers, um, you know, the weird, the weird and wonderful. Yeah. Which obviously, I mean, you doubled with uh, Peter Mayhew from Chewbacca, uh, Harry Potter. It's like you get to dabble in these franchises where in a world that's so crazy it is right now with politics and the government and wars and every people to to escape into a film for two or three hours or a season. It's I that's why I love film because it's like you just get to get away and just appreciate the art around you you're watching and just escape from the bullshit that's happening in the world right now. And for you to be part of all these franchises, it's it's gotta be pretty humbling. Like I don't I'm so stoked, stoked to be talking to you because it's like all these movies and films you've been in, I'm just like a huge fan <laughs> of. And it's like it's it's awesome. I was well, you know, it I I don't live my life looking in the rearview mirror. I'm a very forward-thinking person. And the only time I really do look in the rearview mirror is when I get uh, an opportunity to talk about it with with someone like you. Because obviously right. I can't talk to my wife about it or my son. Hey, remember when I was in the predator? Hey, remember when I was in the Yeah, but that'd be awesome, oh, though. Those... <laughs> <laughs> they would get very bored of that very, very quickly. No, but, you know, I, I'm always looking forward. I'm, I'm always... You know, I, I always say, you know, life is in front of you, move towards it. Is there a certain character or franchise out there right now where, or even if you want to create an original character uh, in a, whatever, you had the opportunity to do the unlimited budget to create something, a version, a character you want to always do. Like what's out there for you that you kind of like, yeah, it'd be cool to play in a superhero movie or a, like how often does these people reach out to you and be like, based on your wide body of work and able to play these characters, I would think if I were a casting director, I want a seven-foot guy in every one of my movies. <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> well, there's lots of us out there, you know. <laughs> I, yeah. I saw something absolutely uh, beautiful um, uh, on TV uh, recently. It's called I'm a Virgo. And it's uh, written and directed by Boots Riley, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's a beautiful modern fairy tale. And uh, it's just—I won't, I won't spoil, give any spoilers, but it's—it's it's so worth watching. It really is fantastic, and I, that's one person I'd love to work with, Boots Riley. Awesome, yeah. It seems like fantasy. I know with the Lord of the Rings and the Wheel of Time, like all these like big streaming Amazon, Netflix are doing all these big crazy shows. It's again, it's just—it's such a for you to like. How is that process? Like, is it? Do you have an agent or someone that, hey, they're looking for this character? Like, are you, do you have to yourself actively look for these roles or do you have someone that's helping you kind of be like, hey, they're looking to cast a six foot 10, seven foot tall person? Like, how's that, how's that process work for you? Uh, well, it, it's, it's a combination of all these things. You know, I, I do have a theatrical agent and I do keep my ear to the ground uh, very closely. Um, you know, you can't be, you can't, be aloof uh, from the industry that right. you work in um you have to know what's going on and you know quite quite often actually quite recently uh some friends have have been in touch saying hey i'm directing this can you be in it 
and that's always gratifying when that happens because yeah. and, and and humbling you think you know maybe i am doing something right yeah <laughs> how is it maintaining the physical aspect of what you do like is there a fitness regimen uh, do you have to eat a certain way like how do you maintain are there injuries from basketball that you carried over to stunt work and acting or vice versa where you kind of as you get older and roles get changed up like how do you maintain like your physical like your physical aspect of what you do from without getting injured like is there stretching is there breath work like how do you like talk talk me through all that um uh, over the years uh, obviously i had a, a history of um sport and fitness being a, um, a sports person uh, over the years i've studied yoga uh, uh kung fu uh, kickboxing uh, various other martial arts and i'm 52 years old now so i don't do i don't go and practice these things on a daily basis but i do work out like a complete madman uh, about four times a week yeah it's such a like when you put some of these costumes on and like all this wardrobe and makeup like how heavy what was the heaviest costume you've had to wear while portraying a character i don't know exactly um uh in various configurations in AVP, the costume weighed about 30 to 40 kilos. Uh, there was um, a costume that I wore on, on Rogue One. Uh, well, I forget what his name was. Anyway, he had this huge, great backpack. And uh, we were doing a costume test. And um, I got the costume on. And the costume was not that much to, to speak of, really. Uh, in terms of weight and um, we were waiting for uh, the backpack to arrive and one of my colleagues said oh here comes your backpack it's it's being brought in by the art department and it was was being brought in by the entire art department they were all it was about five or six people were carrying this thing I was like I've got to wear that <laughs> what one of the as you dabbled in Alien vs Predator and then later Prometheus which I love the film. But I, I love the fact that it's so divisive with the audience and the people that love Alien. But you, when you talked about the Suleiman character, the dialect of Excalibur, you as you play the last engineer in Prometheus, and again, another language, another type of... like How'd that come about? Because it's actually a pattern here where not only your physical skills, but you're, you have to do a lot of like these new languages and type of new approach to these characters when it comes to the voices. So like how'd that come about? Right. The um, if if you remember Prometheus, right at the beginning, there's a scene where uh, David, uh, character yes. played by uh, Fassbender, uh, um, he is uh, he's watching uh, um, Lawrence of Arabia and he's doing his hair, and um, he's listening to a hologram teaching him the the alien uh, the alien dialect. Well, that's man in the hologram. Uh, was the linguist oh, who wow. designed the alien language. And I forget his name. Uh, he was a very learned man from a university in, uh, in London. And uh, uh, I met him uh, one afternoon and we went through various uh, um, intonations and clicks and there were lots of guttural sounds from down in here and clicks at the back of the throat, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, I had a... Um, and they gave me a practice piece, a practice script. Uh, 
I don't know why they didn't give me the initial scripts uh, to begin with. But anyway, they gave me this practice piece. And um, it had words in it. It had names of things in it that, uh, that weren't translated into the, uh, in, into the alien language. And um, one of them was uh, uh, Sea Beam. And another one was uh, Orion. And I spotted it instantly. It was Roy Batty's speech from Blade Runner. Yeah. So I went, went back to the producers and I said, listen, you got to give me the words that I'm going to say in the story. Yeah. Because this, <laughs> this is Blade Runner. And every time I read it, I read it in the voice of Rutger Hauer and I burst into tears. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the playing that engineer character, it was such a you think it's peaceful, it's such a menacing. You see, again, you see this character, he's like, Oh, it's just the last engineer, he's just a big dude, he's sophisticated, scientific. But he, you play like this, this is a sense of violence where the, fir the first time in a long time where I saw a character truly be very violent, and it's like the physical aspect of that, it was kind of surreal and very visceral how you portrayed the violence of that where it was almost like poetic but it was it was just so like it was it was just so violent so violent uh yeah uh, you know between waking up and and um and everyone around him dying was you know probably, <laughs> probably about Again, 30 seconds <laughs> to, your, to your point where it's like there's he's a villain for a reason or like he's these characters aren't even really villains they're just no you perceive them as yeah yes he, he was perceived as being a villain but um you know, Wayland, Wayland had a god complex. Yes, he wants to meet his maker, and um, he had the arrogance of somebody with a god complex. And uh, you know, and that was his first mistake because the engineer wasn't a god. He was, he was a truck driver. He was a pilot. He had more in common with Idris Elba's character than he did with a yep. with a billionaire, um, a robotics. Uh, and scientist um so yeah he why was he so violent i i guess because it suited the story yeah and i always think too it's like maybe he was scared it's like it's a reaction like an animal would do if they're quartered or where the hell am i it's like again it's just to put you portray these characters they're just they just hit home i think it'd be easy if you just got a guy or girl to play some hulking person with no lines and you didn't really care about it's how you portray them and like again the movements where this is a guy that you, you played the predator but now you're playing another tall character or another tall character their movements are saved their actions are saved their eyes are moving the same and it's, it, they're moving different and you're just kind of like what a fat I like dude I, I was like i need to have ian on this podcast because i'm just like blown <laughs> again blown away by someone of your talent a lot of the time, you didn't, you're never really 100% certain of what you're going to do or how it's going to work until you're in the costume, in the makeup, in front of the camera, showing the director. Right. And we can use that scene as an example. We shot that scene twice. Crazy. And how much yeah. trust... It must be vital for you between yourself, a producer, a director, and other actors to have a level of trust where they know... Not only are you going to bring your best effort, but they trust your decision. In a certain, if there's a part that comes up where it hasn't been written yet, but you do something, 
you think you know you're doing this in the best interest of what the film is supposed to be like how much trust is there has there ever been a time where a director's been like hey just, i trust you run with it you're gonna do you're gonna do the right thing here or, or do you have to be very strict in terms of this is what they want this is what i have to do uh, yeah you've got to, you've got to do all the hard work uh, before you step in front of the camera yeah you've got to make sure you're ready and prepared you know, trust yourself that is you know that, that's the bottom line trust yourself that you're doing if you try if you do the work and you trust that you're that you've done the work then when you step into the camera it's it's easy right is it fascinating for you and i know you've done a couple of comic cons and the conventions and stuff but when fans come up to you at your booth and want to take pictures of you and tell you how your a certain character saved their life is it at what point in your career did you realize that the characters you're playing are helping people, whether they're suicidal or the depression, or just making them feel really good? Was it the first time? Where was the first time you heard that? It felt like, like holy cow, like I'm making a difference outside of these characters I play. Um, I I did have an experience once. Um, I'm meeting a fan, and he was very timid and very um, shy, and you know I could tell that it meant something to him. This, this meeting meant something to him. And, and there was something that he wanted to say. And I, I guess we just had a meeting of, yeah. of the minds. And, and uh, you know, to cut a long story short, um, he, he, you know, we, we had a hug and, you know, we understood each other. Yep. And you know, as human beings, yeah, I think that's that, that. I think that's why I love the conventions because you get to see these men and women, whether actors, stuntmen, whoever, be themselves, but they've played characters that either, again, whether they saved a life or helped with depression, or they inspired someone to be someone else or follow their career path. Or it's, I've, I've and I've met a couple of actors. And uh, at those conventions, and I have friends who help put them on, and so I'm always just kind of like, I've never met anyone. I've been like, I wish I could spend more time with my grandfather or people like that. Like, I, w- I mean, sure, I would love to hang out with John Wayne, but I'm never like blown away by like, select the celebrity idea of people. I'm blown away by the fact that the people that are celebrities or athletes, who they are outside the camera or in front of with no makeup or no whatever, are just tr- really good human beings. And I love seeing that at the conventions when some of these actors are so like passionate about the people around them and doing autographs and pictures. Like it says something about the human spirit about that as well. Yeah. I mean, when we're on set, you know, talking to each other, that's what we talk about life, yeah. each other's, each other's children. <laughs> Where's a good place to fix the fan belt on the car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. A good recipe for pasta. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh before I let you go and stuff, I know you kind of hinted at some scripts and stuff and whatever, but what kind of projects do you have coming up and where do you see I mean obviously there's a lot of going on with the, the union strikes and all that, but where do you see yourself or what do you want to see in the next couple of years in terms of not only your career, but like the industry as a whole? Um, yeah, well, we're fingers crossed that um, apparently SAG are going to uh, negotiations uh, again today. And yeah. um, we're fingers crossed that uh, an agreement shall be reached soon. Um, 
hopefully the writers uh, agreement will act as a framework for that um i in terms of myself um i've uh, got scripts for some independents uh, independent uh, independent film productions which hopefully will go into production next summer i'm also working on a script awesome. and although we've we've been kicking this uh, working on script working on script for a play uh, been kicking this script backwards and forwards with the director for about seven years now, and we've finally got to the point where we're like, yes, we're gonna do it. So um, we've been to look at a theatre and uh, in Glasgow, and uh, we're still at the fingers crossed stage, but um, it's it's moving forward in the right direction. Is that if, if for Broadway and plays and stuff like that for the live audience versus you filming? if I have a crew and it goes out to whatever, is the preparation change for you? Is there more fear, the unknown playing in front of a lot of audience? Because you could do, a, your your play could be one night, people react differently to something, and the next night, completely different there. It's like, how do you gauge your performance in that? Uh, well, before we even get to that, it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of, um, it's, there's a lot of homework to do. <laughs> I've <Yeah>. got a <laughs> lot of, <laughs> a lot of script to learn. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I haven't been on stage since uh, ooh, a long, 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 long time ago. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yes, it's quite daunting, but um, you never, you know, you never know till you go and do it. No, that's that's great advice. Well, uh, Ian, if someone wants to follow you on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, do you have a website? Do you have any? If someone wants to catch up on you, where do you suggest they should check out? Um, Instagram is the best place. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, but uh, you know I don't use it that yeah. much. Uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, very occasionally uh, motivational and inspirational, but <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> well, I uh, I appreciate the time today, and uh, I absolutely adore all the characters you played. Hopefully, you keep playing it for another fifty years. And uh, it's uh, thank you for taking the time today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Oh, hello. I'm just enjoying this nice fucking camera. Anyways, I'm John, the host of Spear Talk, and I want to talk to you about nice fucking candles. We are lucky to have nice fucking candles as a sponsor of the podcast. And if you use code SPEARTALK15, you get 15% off your first order, or use the affiliate link below to always get your candle needs through nice fucking candles. Nice fucking candles are 100% soy wax. They have a 65-hour burn time, maybe more, if you uh, nurse the flame a little bit, maybe. I don't know. I'm not an expert on flames uh, or candles, but I will say these things burn a long fucking time. You ask you about the wick. It's a double wick for even burning, which is amazing. And uh, they come with three incredible flavors. Uh, I'm not sure if you're going to be eating these candles, but if you do like them, this scent are eucalyptus and ginseng, tobacco and fireside, and seaside and driftwood. Once again, uh, nice fucking candles. They are the candle company for Spear Talk. And if you love candles and need a good scent to clear out your office, your room, your podcast room, your weight room, uh, your whatever you're doing in a room that smells like crap, use this candle. It's amazing. Thank you. Check them out. Love nice fucking candles.
you looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.